everyone, welcome back to the podcast and to part two of the Best of Power Hour 2021. We're going to take a listen back to some of the previous conversations, the guests sharing their wisdom and insight and motivation. Honestly, as the host of this show, I get to learn so much. I feel so lucky and I absolutely love it. So thank you so much for listening each week and for supporting this podcast. All right, let's kick off part two with the one and only Monica Jones. As someone who works incredibly hard, not just in the boxing ring, but in life, I would really love to talk to you about work ethic and actually, as I said, this applies across, you know, business, exercise, all these things. And let's be honest, again, I talk about things that are hard. I often say one of my like kind of mantras is you can do hard things. And the reason Mm -hmm. I say that is because instead of waiting for something to become easy or instead of thinking, oh, Adrian, if I do this how many times do I have to practice this until it's effortless or until it's easy? And I actually say some things I think will always be hard. And so instead of waiting for them to become easier, or you're just going to magically, you know, for example, if you're, if you find public speaking difficult, like, oh, one day you're just not going to anymore. Maybe it's always going to be hard, but you can do hard things anyway. So often when I hear you talk about, you know, putting the work in and working hard, you're not giving people like, oh, make it easier by doing this, or actually here's a hack or a shortcut. So why is the mindset of working hard? Why is that so important to you? It's the integrity of the process that creates the greatest outcome for us. I feel as if, you know, understanding that if I put in the best practice, then the outcome is going to be beautiful and I don't need for it to get easier. If it were easier, then the outcome would fall short of what I truly, truly want. And, you know, I usually tell people like I'm, I'm a huge fan of doing, you know, single limb and, and unilateral work because we have to make sure that our body is going to be pretty proportionate and um, pretty equal in strength on both sides. And there's always going to be something to correct on one side versus the other. So I'm telling people, you know, do a single leg bicep curl and maybe see them leaning back. And this is in previous years because I'm mostly coaching groups now. But if I see someone leaning back during a bicep curl, I'm like, you need to choose the path of most resistance. We have been our bodies, you know, our minds, our spirits, a lot of times are programmed to find the path of least resistance, to find an easier way. But if we can lean into the path of most resistance, we are going to get the most out of it. So I would say work ethic is all about the integrity of in the moment, but it's also about understanding what kind of outcome you truly want. So if I'm like, oh, exercise is hard. I don't want it to be that hard. Well, you know, what did you actually want out of it? Did you want to continue to live with ease or did you want to say that you got through something tough and it made you better? It made you tougher. So it's it's just about getting a little bit intrinsic and understanding what truly is motivating you. What are you looking for? And, you know, for me, hard work is, I don't want to say easier to do, but hard work is more motivating to do when you have a true purpose in mind. And when you truly don't take the opportunity for granted. So those are two big things for me is, you know, really understanding the opportunity that you have each time you can do something Mm -hmm. difficult or that you're faced with something difficult and putting the integrity into the path of most resistance and knowing that 
there's going to be something really beautiful that comes of that, that you could not get if it were easier. Mm, Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. And also, I guess, again, I'm thinking about right what you said at the start, it stuck in my mind about service of others and I think sometimes when we think about something that's hard it's not always just to serve ourselves right sometimes it can be for others it could be for our kids it could be for for uh, something we're going to create that's going to help other people and I often think the same thing applies there like the things that are maybe the most overwhelming and daunting and the hardest to do are the things where you really feel the biggest sense of you know what this is it's the thing that is going to help other people often is that that that's the hard thing to do oh yeah And also, I'd love to know, you know, it's all very well me saying, you know, you can do hard things and, you know, and you mentioned, you know, choosing the path of the most resistance because that is going to pay off and it's going to have the biggest reward. But we're all human, right? So we never, we never get it right all the time. Sometimes we probably do take the easy option or sometimes we probably, I don't know, we, we cut corners or or we try something and it doesn't work out and, and we don't quite achieve what we wanted to. So in those moments... As I said, we all have them. What do you what do you say to yourself then? So in those moments, it is it's okay. I've, we can't we cannot do the most difficult or most intense thing all the time. But it's about the intention. You know, how are you setting yourself up for the for the grand picture for the greater outcome, and how are you keeping that? How are you keeping that internal reflection renewed? So, okay, I did something really hard yesterday. Should I expect myself to be able to do something really hard today? No, right? Mm -hmm. So then I am going to strategically look towards what is a little bit easier. I believe that it becomes very uh, frustrating and conflicting when we are just randomly rolling about life and trying to find the easiest path in everything that we do, but we're not quite clear on what the overall goal is. So if I don't know truly and intentionally what my overall goal is, and I constantly look for easier, then I'm not really getting better, right? And I also yeah. might not be getting that much closer, you know? So it's it's just about, you know, random planning is going to bring random results and if you are truly, truly planning your effort, planning your attack, then you do know that, you know, maybe I'm I'm in a round, you know, going against my opponent and I've got 30 seconds to go hard because I know that I, I've set up the right combination. And then maybe for another 30, I'm kind of just coasting, just jabbing it out for a little bit. And then I can see where their energy is. Oh, now I can go hard for 45 seconds or you know, go hard for 15 in the last 45, I'm coasting till the end of the round. But it's about having true intention and creating a plan of action. Otherwise, doing things that are easy feels more guilty because it becomes a trend. And then we're like, where is this taking me? You know, I see other Mm -hmm. people leveling up all around me, but I don't feel like I'm leveling up. And, you know, sometimes doing the, the constantly easy things and the convenient things becomes hard emotionally to take on because of what Mm. we see other people achieving, because they decide to do some things, you know, that are more difficult and they've planned to do some things that are a little bit easier. But it's, it's really just all about intention and, and really having a plan. Mm. Yeah. The plan part. And as you said, making the goal clear, because, and again, a friend of mine, a really good friend of mine who also has, you know, very strong relationship with God. And she always says to me in anything, you know, from the Bible, it says, write the vision and make it clear. Now, Mm -hmm. regardless of how the, you know, regardless of if anyone listening, regardless if you have a relationship with God or not, this example, I think was so helpful for me. And it's like, if you ask God for something, so you pray, or if you 
let's imagine you order something on Amazon, okay? You've pressed buy and you know it's coming. So it's so clear. It's so obvious. It's literally like, you know what it is. You pressed buy and it's on its way. Then you trust that it's coming, right? So you know that it's going to arrive. You don't then the next day think, oh, let me order it again. Let me order it again. Let me order it again. Mm -hmm. Because then you, you know, it's like, it's it's coming. And so this idea of write the vision, make it clear. It's like, you've asked for it, you know, get on, do the work, but it's coming. And I just, honestly, when, when I think about that, sometimes I'm just like, like you don't, you know, maybe not the perfect example because Amazon now is super speedy, so you don't have to wait very long. Um, whereas we might ask mm-hmm. for something and have to wait years for it. But I think that analogy of make it clear, you can't just say to someone, okay, I want to, let's say I want to, I don't know, earn more money. You're like, okay, what does that mean? Does that mean you want to double your salary or does it mean you want to earn like a hundred pounds more? Like what's the goal? Or like, I want to get fit. What does that mean? Does it mean you want to get stronger? Does it mean you want to be able to run further? Like again, having clarity on any goal in your life is going to help you in everything, right? It's going to help you to stay on track. It's going to motivate you. It's going to help you to actually determine like, have you succeeded in the goal? Because if you don't have yeah, a clear goal, how do you know that you haven't already you haven't surpassed it. You know, what's the parameters in which you're literally going to say defining the success or the failure if you don't even know really what the goal is? Yes, yes, absolutely. Getting specific is so important. You know, I love uh, I love Coloring Book, the Chance the Rapper album. And one of the songs on there is, you know, are you ready for your blessing? And I ask myself that all the time. I think a lot of us can get really frustrated feeling like we're deserving of something, but we're kind of sitting around waiting for it and feeling deserving And we're not doing the work to actually be ready to have it. So, you know, if I look at myself, you know, a decade ago when I got into fitness and I felt like I deserved to be a huge influencer and someone who created a program for a fitness franchise, someone who got to be a brand ambassador for a global sports performance brand, if I felt like I deserved to be that back then, but all I knew how to do was run, (laughs) that is not what I was going to be prepared (laughs) to take on at, you know, 22. So it's really important to know that, hey, you might have ordered it, but are you ready for it? Let's say I ordered a TV, but I don't have a TV stand. Okay, do I expect to be watching TV when this TV gets to my house? Oh, okay, but I'm going to watch it on the floor (laughs) because I didn't have the setup for it, right? So it's like, if you ask for it, make sure you're doing what you need to do to get prepared for its arrival. Um, And don't think that just because you had the means to ask for it, just because it's on the way, that that means that you just wait. Mm, Yes. Oh my gosh, I love that. Get prepared, do the work, make sure that whatever it is, because of course we always, we're encouragers, right? We're going to tell you, yes, go after those big goals, but you're absolutely right. Make sure that you're doing the prep work and that you're ready for it when it does come, when that opportunity does come or when that, I don't know, whatever it is comes knocking that actually, yeah, you're ready to take it on. I love that. Often when we listen to interviews uh, of founders, particularly if you're listening to podcasts or or YouTube interviews with successful founders about their journey, I kind of feel like there's two camps. And often I see either the founder will say, oh, I've been incredibly lucky. You know, I didn't have a plan. One thing led to another. You know, I just wrote a few things down on a napkin and suddenly they had this (laughs) accidental success. And then, you know, then six months later, I sold my company for a 500 million pound valuation. And (laughs) this is, you know, you hear this like accidental, you know, success then the other side I often hear is you know 
people will say, I was very strategic. I worked really, really hard. I never took no for an answer. I just kept on going. I had this relentless pursuit that whatever happened, I was going to make this plan work. And I just kept going, kept going, kept going. So I'm sure there's lots in between. But Grace, for you, would you say that with yeah, building your businesses, building your online platform, building your your profile, would you say that, that you always had a plan or was it more serendipitous? Well, I think I can actually probably sit in both camps um, with each business. Um, so, you know, as I say, with the with the first business, it, it was in a way a lucky coincidence. Right place, right time being with the social media world and growing on, you know, growing in that kind of fitness influencer space and then really understanding what I guess the customer wanted from that type of brand and really developing that brand identity um, and kind of growing it into what Shreddy is today. Whereas with Tala, it was a lot more not intentional, but it was it was a lot slower. It was a lot more gradual. And it, it was very kind of, you know, what you'd classically imagine to be starting a business. So, you know, I spent a year before we even launched um, conceptualizing it and sourcing manufacturers and um, building a team and working out a plan and a strategy. And, um, and so that was a lot more of a kind of long haul. And since then, I'd say that, you know, even if you stumble across a gold mine essentially and um have a fantastic idea in this that and the other that i guess only gets you so far you know scaling a business is really really tough um mm. and i'm only in the early stages of it i guess and being able to build a team make sure the culture's still there make sure the customers are still happy make sure that when you're spending huge amounts on new orders because you're trying to scale you have everything else that kind of balances that out um and and for so I, I kind of feel like, you know, even in the areas where I feel like with Shreddy, for example, it was very gradual. It was a lot more of a kind of, oh, this works. Let me replicate that. Let me do more of this. Let me try that with this product. Um, you still kind of then have to really hone that and learn and, and try and grow and fail a lot of the time and then go again. Mm. Yeah. And something you mentioned then was, you know, really knowing what the customers want. And, you know, I mentioned at the start about how you've had so much success and you're so young. And I think actually, I really think that in the way the the, the world order, if you like, when it comes to business now due to social media and due to the kind of way in which consumer habits have changed due to social media, I really think there's a huge benefit in that, which a lot of companies I think are missing out on. So for example, mm -hmm. companies where, you know, all of the board of directors or all of the decision makers and all of the leadership team or all of the, you know, they might be a, all a similar age, which is usually typically, you know, maybe it's late thirties, they might all have, you know, a similar amount of experience. And, and I think that looking at someone who's 24 and saying, well, you know, they're junior or they don't know enough yeah. about business or they don't know enough about, you know, they haven't scaled a company before. Or, but actually I think that missing piece and really understanding what a customer really wants, you know, listening to that tone of voice of youth culture of, you know, understanding this is what people want. This is where they're going to spend their money and actually just being, you know, bold about that. I think a lot of people, if they really understood that, even if they're not starting their own business, even if they work for a company, but saying, mm. you know what, I might be junior or I might be young, but listen to what I have to say, because I know what my customers or what my audience or what my yeah. peers, I know what they want. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree wholeheartedly. I'm often, I guess, asked to speak about kind of Gen Z and how to market to them and what they want from brands and all of this, that and the other. And I think that that kind of goes to show, you know, I think a lot of the people who will then be listening in those types of panels and, and reading about it and thinking like, oh, we need to storytell or we need to do this or our brand identity needs to be this authentic or whatever it might be. 
they're also then overlooking the fact sometimes that there are fantastic you know gen z and millennial people within their companies who could give them this exact advice like yes. they could you know they could be saying you know what do you consume on social media i know recently for example we've had to hire whole new people because i don't understand tiktok and i and, and a lot of the people then in my social media team they might be really great on instagram or something and they're like oh well i don't use tiktok for this so we've had to kind of say you know i'm not going to go to someone with 10 years experience in that no one has that so it's much better yeah. off to have someone who has a good attitude and and kind of fits the culture and really understands what people want and i think in part you know there's been there's been a lot of right place right time there's been a lot of hard work there's been a lot of all these other things um but one of the huge i'd say factors in the success of the companies has actually been that for both of them i have been the ideal customer so i have matched up exactly to what we see our target demographic as so Mm. you know if it's tala it's someone who's into fitness who also has an eye to kind of looking at what fast fashion is really like and wants to change that but actually doesn't necessarily have the disposable income to or doesn't feel it's right to pay 150 pounds then to have something that's sustainable and and won't necessarily I guess the kind of difficulty between that decision of Mm. buying something that isn't when it's you know 100 pounds cheaper and so really understanding that and being able to hone that as a concept has been invaluable and I think actually then you know I often I often do that thing where you know I talk to these amazing people who want to talk to who want to talk to me I guess about the business and and to potentially come on board and be part of like a leadership team and I'm kind of saying like oh well you know you're obviously the experienced one here and I haven't I'm, I'm very inexperienced very inexperienced and what I've actually had recently is of is some people I guess saying you know actually no one's experienced in or there's only a certain amount of experience you can have in the social media area and and in the kind of like brand and product and what these people really want. And actually, if you know it, you know it. It's not about spending 10 yes. years there. It's not about spending 15 years there. It's about having that kind of heightened observation and being able to work out what works and then to replicate that. Yes, I really hope people hear that and take it on and think, you know what, what you know, what your contribution is valuable. So really, yeah, know what you know, be commit to to getting behind your idea or your voice. And actually, you know, my role, at, so I'm, you know, the director of innovation at a startup, a fitness tech startup. And I think, you know, often people say to me, they're like, what is that director of innovation? But essentially what you're describing there, you know, it's something that I certainly think about all the time is just really observing, as you said, like what is actually happening in terms of, you know, right now in the fitness industry, obviously with the huge disruption of the pandemic, what does that look like for, for, you know, regular people who whether they're working out whether they're you know how how they interact essentially online like all of these things are connected I don't think they're separate anymore either around like business or social media or marketing like they're all just it's it's, everything is connected into one so yeah yeah I I think so for sure and I think that where people are actually recognizing the value and where they're able to I guess, benefit from the value is where they are recognising exactly that, where they are, you know, where people with experience, the best thing they can do is actually acknowledge that often, I guess, often less experience in this area is actually really valuable. And if you can keep an open mind to that and an open mind to what people can bring to your organisation, like I find it really important, for example, to value everyone's opinions no matter where they're in. So we asked customer service, our customer service team about product. We asked, you know, we we, we asked these questions to the whole organisation because we all wear clothes or we all do this. And so actually being able to learn 
from that and keep that open mind and really value that difference of opinion, no matter how experienced people are, I think is incredibly value valuable. And the companies or the organisations or whatever that aren't doing that are probably missing out on the real nuance of what it means to be a brand now. I guess actually I'd love to start by defining status. So when you say status in the status game, what is it and why is it so important to us? Well, it's simply the, the feeling that we ha- that we are of value to people, that we have people's esteem and respect. You know, that, that that's basically what it is. So, so, so it's not to be confused with belonging and connection. Those are also you know very important uh, needs. That's you know about feeling loved and and connected to a community. Once you've connected into a community, you kind of want that community to give you some respect and value you. So it's that it's that that we're talking about when we talk about status. And why is it why is it that sometimes people have a bit of a like, oh, I don't like to think about that as something that I want or something that I would admit to wanting status. It seems like something we should all say, oh, no, 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 I don't care about status. I don't, I don't care about that. Yeah, it's so weird because because the need for status kind of eats itself because, you know, ironically, admitting that we're that we're interested in status deranks us in status we don't like to think of ourselves that way we don't like to think of our friends that way so we so we kind of deny it and it's also a conscious versus you know subconscious thing the the conscious experience of being alive is a story the brain tells a heroic story about who we are and why we're doing what we do but underneath that conscious story there's lots of you know very powerful subconscious um you know mechanism going on that's evolved over tens of thousands and millions of years and uh, and uh, you know th- those mechanisms are very very interested in our in our relative status even if consciously we like to we're very very good at denying that yeah exactly we don't want to say you know everyone says oh, i don't care i don't care what people <laughs> think or or they, well, we tell other people to do that don't we we say you know you shouldn't care what other people think just do your own thing but you know we don't live in isolation in this world and so therefore whether it's due to you know as you, you mentioned like thousands and thousands of years ago whether it was due to safety and being in a group or whether it's just due to being liked and therefore you know having more favorable outcomes throughout your life i think this idea of oh you shouldn't care what people think actually isn't useful at all it's not useful no and it's also impossible you know humans are a species of ape but obviously we're really different to all the other apes and the difference is that we're hyper social so some some psychologists say we're part ape part b we're that social and we've evolved in such a way that we have to rely on a on being accepted into a community of people in order to survive and reproduce and of course survival and reproduction are the basic aims of every living thing and that's how humans do it it's connection uh, you know it's connecting into a group of people and earning status so you know all, all you know animals you know compete for status and the more status we get the 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 more likely we were to survive we got better food safer sleeping sites a greater choice of you know our, our preferred mates uh, so, so the basic rule that the braid has been you know working with for for millions of years is go for status because if you get more status everything else gets better and of course you know that that was true tens of thousands of years ago it was true before we were even human millions of years ago and it's still true today you know you look out of your window the more status people have the the better things get for them so so, so that's that's the, the the basic game of human life Mm. And I, I mean, I found the entire book fascinating. And there are some great examples of stories and how this human quest for status impacts all of us. It impacts the decisions that we make, the people that we look up to and aspire to, even the way we you know, self-reference in relation to other people. So where do we fit amongst our peers, amongst our colleagues? And that actually, one of the things I took away from it is that status is not just about 
you know, economic class or gender or religion, or often we think about it as, you know, monetary things. So like, how big is your house? You know, what car do you drive? But actually it's more about, I guess on a subconscious level, it's more about influence and about power and about recognition from others. So, so could you explain to us like why the quest for status is universal to all of us, regardless of how old we are, you know, which country we're living in the world, how much wealth we have. It's actually, yeah, it's universal to everyone. Yeah, so, so so the latest research, as, as you say, finds that the, 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 the you know the need for status is universal. It, it, cro- it cuts across age, gender, class, um, you know, religion, culture. It, everywhere you look, pe- people are enthusiastic, even if subconsciously, about raising their you know relative rank and, and and achieving the kind of respect of their peers. And I think the mistake that we make is that we we we, we, we see status symbols as simply oh money or. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market being a celebrity uh, and it isn't that you know diff- different groups or in, in the book I call them you know games um, choose different things to symbolize status so if you work on Wall Street or in the city of London or, or if you're a big you know big company lawyer you may well use money as a symbol of status and, and, that, and that's your game it's money Who, who's earning the most money but but, but we can use anything to, to symbolize status sports people some of them use money, but, 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 you know, the main game they're playing is who, who's the fastest runner, who's going to score the most goals at football. So that's a different symbol of status. Some people might use, um, you know, activism. You know, I'm the best activist in my group. I, I, I'm achieving the, you know, the best results in my group. And, and so, so, so every group uses different things to symbolize status, different things to symbolize success. Just like in the games we play in life, Monopoly uses, you know, um, plastic houses to symbolize success and plastic mm. hotels so, so so that's that's the mistake we make is is that we think it's all about money or power but money and power are just different ways of of playing the status game they're just different ways we can choose or not choose to symbolize status mm. and as you mentioned they're not in different places around the world they're very different things right so for example you know in the book i know when you speak about in places in the world where the status might be measured on you know the biggest yam that you can grow (laughs) the size of your yam which although that sounds funny it is that idea that actually we're so connected to those around us that our peer group influences so much of what we want and 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 what we deem to be um the top of our rank or the or the pecking order if you like right down from you know being in the playground to being in an office and actually that we're always comparing to those around us rather than thinking about people on the other side of the world that's right you know you know we, 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 it, it, the, the power of culture is just extraordinary it's massive you know we, we're born humans are born with kind of half finished brains the brains have the basic outlines of who we are and, and how to be a human but all the rest is colored in by culture as we're growing up and and and, and one of the big things that culture is doing you know it, and it's not just your national culture it's your uh, the culture in which you're born and raised you know that's where class and things like gender do do come into it because in that very local culture 
culture we're, we're raised into. Different things symbolize status. And, and so, 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 and the brain is very good at attaching onto those things and just telling us that, yes, it's really, really important, this particular thing that you're pursuing. Um, and as you say in the book, you know, I talk about there was a study in 1948 published about from, you know, there's an island called Pompeii in Micronesia where, where it was all about who could grow the biggest yam. And whoever brought the biggest yam to a feast was declared number one. And, you know, the power of the status urge and also the, the amazing fluidity of, of, of how we can play games and, you know, a testament to human ingenuity is the huge size of the yams they started growing. There, there was an account where one yam took, it took 12 men to carry one yam into a feast. They had to build a special stretcher on poles. It was so big. So, so, so that's human brilliance. You know, that's, that, that's, you know, it's silly and weird, but, but when you apply that to things like, you know, coming up with the coronavirus vaccine, for example, or becoming the fastest mm. runner in the world, for example, we, we, you know, the status pursuit in, you know, incentivizes this, you know, us to really achieve amazing things as human beings. Yeah, and I guess that is something that we should, yeah, maybe talk more on that is that there is a positive to this as well, because often I think when, even myself, actually, when I was listening to certain chapters of the book, I was thinking, God, it doesn't sound good, does it? Do you know what I mean? It gives you that feeling of like doom and gloom that we're all yeah. these like self-serving, we all, you know, everyone's competing to get ahead. And, you know, if somebody gets a pay rise, then you start to feel bad about yourself. But then if you, and it's all this thing of actually, you know, this compare and despair. So it doesn't, it doesn't all sound good. But actually, I think what is the positive because obviously everything in our brain has a function good and bad what mm. is the positive when it comes to our quest for for status you mentioned you know driving innovation and helping us to improve and what is that uh, i guess yeah the positive side of the status game yeah, well, there, there, there are huge negatives, as you say, but there are also huge positives. And, and you know, going back to our evolutionary history, to the big era when we were living in mobile bands, this is the era in which our kind of brains evolved to, to think this way and, and to, to pass reality this way. So, so, so you'd earn a good reputation, you'd earn status for being useful to your tribe or your group. And there are two ways of being useful. One is about being virtuous, so by being courageous or... Um, um, uh, generous with your food, for example, or helpful. So, 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 so you know, these people would be rewarded with status, but also by being successful by, by being you know, the best hunter, the best honey finder, the best storyteller, these people would also be raised in status, the prestige form of status. So virtue and success were rewarded with status um, in those days and they still are today we make you know Gandhi and uh, Gandhi is a superhero uh, uh, you know is a, is a global superstar sorry and so is you know Mo Farah uh, one is uh, a superstar because of virtue and the other because of success so so you know, we're, we're this incredible ape that has evolved a system of reward, you know, to reward us uh, people for being virtuous and being successful. And so, and so, you know, this, this drives the very best of human behavior when we're selfless, you know, when, when we celebrate people for being selfless and when, and we are, and when we ourselves say give money to charity and feel good about ourselves, that's evolution rewarding us saying, yes, you're being helpful. Good. Keep doing this. The entire time I've known you, you are someone who is incredibly driven. You have achieved so much. You know, you've written best-selling books. You're always studying. You gained your master's degree during lockdown, uh, as well as working, as well as your food medic, you know, podcast, your social media content is so much. It is a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> you know, it's really a lot. And I think for high-achieving people, 
they probably can relate to this idea of wanting to do more and achieving becoming so much so fundamental to who they are so I'm really interested to talk to you today about the concept of achieving and to hear your thoughts on how you manage the desire to strive and achieve more and to kind of get into that process of looking forward to the next thing as well as understanding you know what why you're striving for what you're striving for so when is your work fulfilling what makes you happy and when does it start to become too much because for many high achievers, I really think it's a fine line and they want to do more and maybe they can do more. You know, I think about myself included sometimes in that I want to do more things and I know I have the capacity to do it, but I don't want to get, you know, so close to burnout or I don't want to stop enjoying it because I'm just relentlessly doing the next thing and the next thing. So yeah, how do you manage that fine, fine line? That's a big question. And I think you know when you are someone who is a high achiever like you know not for everyone but usually it starts young and maybe someone saw some kind of something in you when you're in school whether that's a parent or a teacher and they're like wow you're really good at x and you should try y and so you're like oh I am good at this and then people tell you that you're really good and so you learn quite young that like this element of validation comes with doing well in studies and academia and yeah and I mean all things aside I'm I absolutely love learning like I mean I would go back to uni tomorrow if I could because I just find I love that personal growth and I think for me that that drives me a lot and so that's why I've kind of done all the things that I've done and I've got to where I, I want to be. But I definitely feel like now when I achieve something really big, a big goal, that it feels good for a moment. And then I'm like, right, what's next? And it's really hard to catch yourself and be like, hey, let's just take a moment. You achieve that amazing goal that you've been working for five years. Do we really need to rush on to the next thing? And you can almost like fall into the cycle where you're just chasing goals and ticking boxes. But are you doing like to what end? Like, is it getting you closer to the life that you want to have for yourself? And that's the question I've been asking myself more in the last year. And I turned 30 last year. And I think that was a really pivotal moment for me because I'm like, okay, I'm 30 now. It is what it is. Like, am I on track for the life, my blue sky day, my blue sky life? And yes, I've done all these amazing things, but I do feel on reflection that I may have sacrificed some of the living part of life for that like hustling side, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. And I think it's really honest of you to to say that because, you know, actually funny when you said the living part, I actually did a tweet the other day, shared it on Instagram as well, basically saying, that the problem sometimes with this work-life balance approach is that work is before life because that's the order of prioritization and also can we put living at the center of life and I completely relate to that idea of like I help people to set goals I encourage people to look at you and and you know I do this for myself but I do this for others you know look at the year ahead look at the 12 months look at the seasons like what do you want to achieve whether that's professional goals personal goals 
and that excites me you know I enjoy that it mm. literally lights me up I'm like wow and yeah I want to read these books I want to meet those people and and similar to you we wouldn't have achieved the things that we've achieved if we didn't have that however I think where we're both you know reflecting on this like putting life at the center of life maybe as well because of the pandemic is that yes you can achieve those things and they can stack up and you can tick off the boxes but are you enjoying you know for example it sounds a bit deep but like your life is made up of years which is months which is weeks which is days and in the day to day the things you're doing every day when you wake up in the morning or what you're spending your time doing is that the life that you want to be living is that giving you energy are you enjoying it because I guess if you're just yeah hustling working head down head down you know no time for maybe friends or socializing or some people it's no time for exercise or no time for whatever because they're so relentless like on that one goal that what happens next and ultimately yeah is it going to be worth it when you get it yeah absolutely and I think also if you are you know juggling many things it's very easy to um like I think in in my case like a lot of people tell me oh like it's amazing that you've done all these things and you juggle so many things and blah 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 and you're superwoman and I know that you get this as well and then like there's this pressure to like be that person who's always doing those things and like doing more and always doing better and I think like this year I've actually decided to do less but focus more energy into the things that really matter and so I'm like trimming back things and I took a step back from the hospital which was like a big identity crisis for me because who am I if I'm not in in the hospital in my scrubs and now I'm like you know I'm still a doctor but I'm like working for my own business and the sense of fulfillment I get from that is different but also I've got so much life and living back that I'm like for me like I've I'm successful in a different way Mm. because I've got that Mm, oh that's great to hear that's so great to hear and can you give us some examples like what are those things when you say you've got some life and some living back what are those things that you're like wow I'm doing these things again or enjoying or have time for that you didn't before it's so like you know it's the really simple things it's having like all I wanted was one full day off in a weekend and like now sometimes I'll take two full days off on the weekend And, you know, for a lot of people, that's what they do normally as part of their job. And I think that should be normal. But ever since I qualified as a doctor, the food medic was always running and that was always my side hustle. So if I wasn't in the hospital, I was building my brand. I was writing a book. I was doing something. I was going to meetings. I was going to events and there was no living. And now like I am traveling more within what we could do in the last couple of years, but like going out for brunches I'm dating I'm like spending time outdoors I'm having lazy days I'm you know like seeing more family and I'm catching up and I don't want to you know I don't want to wake up when I'm 50 and be like oh my god it's amazing that I've written 10 books but I'm lonely and I have missed out on all of this yesterday I saw on Instagram stories I saw you talking about 
the reality of a post-COVID world when it comes to mm. work and life, the work-life blend, people's expectations mm. of our work lives. And I've got some stats to share around this because I'd really love to hear your thoughts Ooh. on whether or not you're, you're experiencing the same thing when it comes to the world of side hustle and the hustle culture and whether that hustle culture is ever really going to go away. So yeah. the stat that I saw, which is a recent MetLife study from June 2021, so June this year, and that said that 42% of people aged between 26 and 40 said that they have experienced burnout due to this new hybrid working world. Post-pandemic, mm. many people said they're now working longer hours than they were before the pandemic. Now, mm. anecdotally, as someone who works in a tech startup, so you know anyone who works in a startup, they'll know that that is is full on as well as all of my other projects that I that I do and I know I've got a lot of friends who either whether they're employed or freelance they would agree with this statement because they're now working mm. when they would have maybe been commuting they can now just wake up and go straight into emails straight into slack messages open their laptop mm. whilst they're you know boiling the kettle and mm. the virtual meetings this this virtual meetings in the diary all day they're then having to do work in the evening to catch up because they're in so many just yeah zoom meetings during the day so mm. nicole what do you think about this stat of 42 percent, nearly half of millennials saying that they're now burnt out due to this hybrid working life mm. I, ugh, I mean i'm not surprised am i like i'm not surprised because i think what has been really interesting about the last year is i think it, there were there were there were different modes of of experiences that were shifting it was like Loads of people who were put on furlough, loads of people who unfortunately made redundant. We saw it as a bit of a holiday because we didn't know how long we were going to have these lockdowns for. Um, so it felt more like, you know, this is some time off that I probably would never get. Let me try and do something new. Let me hang out in the park. Let me, you know, really kind of take this downtime to, to think about where I want to be and what, what I want to do. Then there was like another huge social shift, which was like, this is long term. And the conversations around this new normal were really setting in um, when we th think about workplaces, when we think about things, changes that people were making within their organisations, but also um, young people, millennials, definitely, who were now having to go freelance, maybe start a small business just to stay afloat. Um, and this question over this new normal and what this would look like are, you know, there's still thinkers and movers and shakers, people, writers are still trying to define like what this looks like in this new world that we're living in. And then you have this period of time, which I think I call it the aftershock, right? It's the after wave mm -hmm. of everything that's happened over the last year and a half. A system that has failed us, I can rightly say, a system of government that has failed us countless times. And this now new space that we're all trying to navigate, um, which is hybrid, which is almost like, um, like, you know, when you come out of a, you come out of the cinema and the lights are on. And it was like, oh my gosh, like the lights, it's just so bright. Like it's, it feels new, but it's like, I, I recognize these lights, but it's still blinding. And you're just kind of like finding your bearings. Mm. That's what it feels like coming out of everything that we've had so far. Definitely for me, because I was very much just like having almost social anxiety with like leaving my house. I was like, I'm going out to stuff, but I like to stay at home. I want to meet people, but I feel comfortable doing virtual things. There's just confusion right now as to what new normal actually looks like. Some organisations are telling their employees to come in. Some organisations are going totally remote. There's just this complete mix of this hybrid, you know, reality that is just now merging into what once was before and what 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 is now. 
And it's leaving them with so many people confused, right? There is no going back. There's only going forward, but forward hasn't been defined. And we're all kind of just existing in this hybrid space with no clear standard or framework of how we go forward. So we're just overworking ourselves. We're doing stuff in person. We're doing stuff virtual. We're working in the evenings. I'm absolutely not surprised about that that, um, statistics because I too have been burnt out so many times pre-COVID, post-COVID, and trying to navigate how I how I take the lessons of lockdown and try to apply that to my life at at the moment, um, it's 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 crazy. Half the country probably feels like COVID is gone. We've all been vaccinated. Let's go back to how the life used to be. Other half are still very aware that things will never go back to the how things used to be. And there's another group of people who are still terrified that they could contract COVID or things could go back to how things would be. There's a level of anxiety that still remains within society, I feel like, that any at any moment, very much like how it's been for the last couple of, um, over the last year, at any moment, everything can just shut down again. And that is anxiety inducing, that's stressful. Mm, it's annoying. And I think that it's unnerving. And I think that still remains within the air. Like we see how things have happened across the pond in the, in, the, in um, Australia, New Zealand, and we know our winter time is coming, but we don't know if things could just switch off at any moment. We just keep going with the hope that we're now moving into a completely different new world. But I do think this, this element of let's all be hybrid forever, but have no framework or boundaries as to what that looks like is really is really harmful and to hear that so many people are um you know basically spending more hours in your statistics spending more hours working than they were pre-covid is like crazy because it's like mm. well we meant to slow down wasn't didn't the world slow down and and we all face our you know our front about some of the serious social political issues in the world and suddenly take that on as our as our kind of forefront um to challenge and to you know construct and to rebuild on or are we just all like falling back into the trap the normalities that we had pre-covid falling back into the routine and trying to make it work in this hybrid scenario i think that sorry sorry i think it's funny because even when you're describing that reality i think it's as you said it's very it's been very very different for different people and i think Mm. the thing that has changed the most is people's expectation of our Mm. time that certainly Mm. was the case for me i have never worked more and although it was a blessing because people would say oh you know some people have lost their jobs some people are furloughed some people can't pay Mm. their mortgage so of course you're thinking wow lucky me because i actually have got lots of work but at the same Mm. time I was homeschooling my son. I also had, you know, other things, you know, life. And like you said, the the COVID world and thinking around your own safety and and your Mm. health and concerns. But the thing that I think has changed universally is this expectation of people's time. Because people would say to me, Mm. oh, can you, they would send me a calendar invite for a late evening call, or they would ask me to do something by the end of the day or the end of the week, because their assumption is, well, we're all at home. So why can't you, of course you can do it because you're at home. And this idea that because the internet, (laughs) yeah, because the internet is on 24 seven, that that means that you are. And I think the expectation for, as I said, friends, some of them who work in in beauty PR, some of them who work in journalism and the expectation Mm. used to be, okay, I'm going to email you between nine and six now it's it's there's no limit it's like anyone can send you a whatsapp or or email at any time and expect you to just go can you just jump on your laptop now because we'll Mm. what else would why why can't you you know Mm. and that's why i think this uh, that's why i think this blend has just gone 
wider and wider and wider to people that are telling me that they're working 14 hour days and I'm, I'm thinking this is insane you know I have a friend she's That's like I, I eat my breakfast at my desk I eat my lunch at my desk and then she's like by the time I finish all of the virtual meetings I have with the different departments the different teams in the organization then it's time to sit down and actually do the work and then it's mm. go to bed and then she gets up and does it again and I yeah. think it's it's it, like you say it's not surprising but I think what what kind of I guess my point is that if we don't know, as you said, the future hasn't yet been defined, but in mm. the meantime, people can't just work like this, basically. No. It's just, this is they not can't. okay. <laughs> Burnout is not okay. And 42% millennials having experienced that is not okay. And I feel like there is this collective harm that is going to cause upon this generation of people who've had to deal with everything that's happened in this post-COVID world. And I feel like, if if the powers that be don't address this, we'll have some serious issues in a couple of years um, or with the way in which the working world exists. And I think that, um, it, you know, I, I, I totally agree with your point. I think time has now just become this blurred line where people just expect so much from you at all hours and it's ridiculous. And even I remember um, recently one of our uh, partners that we're working with, and I'm strictly trying to adopt like a four-day week. Like I work ridiculous amounts of hours but also Friday is my day it's my team's day nobody works on Fridays and one of the partners that I was working with they were like oh okay yeah let's just jump on a call tomorrow the Friday and do a whole bunch of work and I was just like listen like we do not work on Fridays I'm very adamant that this will have to be on Monday like you just have to get with the program and they were quite shocked they were just like oh oh okay you don't work on Fridays oh like your whole team maybe you (laughs) anyone you've got an intern and I was like, no, nobody is working. And I don't care how urgent this is, nobody's working. But if I don't put my foot down, and I know a lot of people probably might not be in a position to put their foot down, you would just end up working <laughs> the whole time. Yeah. And it's 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 really detrimental, especially if you're a, a freelancer or running a small business and it's like you don't want to, like you said, like not be appreciative of the work that you've got because other people don't have this work and you just want to be grateful and keep it moving. But at the same time, it's like, to what cost do you have to do that till? And for how long? Because you can't do that forever. And something has to give. And if not, your body will give in, basically. Thank you so much for listening. That is it for Power Hour 2021. Of course, we'll be back in January with the new year, new energy and new episodes. And I cannot wait. Have a wonderful Christmas and New Year, everybody, and stay safe. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.